if you look at the patterns, you start to see things like beauty. And as I was attaching consciousness to metaphysics, I started thinking about beauty as being another aspect of that, because everything that we experience is symmetrical. As we talk about love and other sort of phenomenons outside of our direct experience is symmetrical almost, right? It's beautiful. Every human being can understand this concept of beauty. Welcome to the Explorations Podcast, the show of interdisciplinary discussions. My name is Luis Hernandez, and I'm joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Edwin and Joe. How are you guys doing today? Relaxing. Good, Louis. <laughs> Relaxing. <laughs> today is going to be a doozy of an episode. Every discussion and conversation has been very challenging, but we'll get into the reading that you shared, Joe. But after this reading and preparation for this topic, which is metaphysics, I feel like our conversations are going to get deep. So I just asked the listener and the viewer to kind of like, this is a podcast that you want to focus on, at least for the first half, as we define metaphysics before you go into doing other things. But Joe, metaphysics is a topic that I have heard you bring up and discuss throughout our friendship going back many years. We've talked about metaphysics from all different angles, and you always insist on teaching metaphysics at the start of either a new course, in the beginning of philosophical discussions. And it just seems kind of like an odd place to start a conversation on philosophy sometimes because metaphysics, even the first time I heard the term, I'm like, this is too out there. I wouldn't even want to touch it. So if you can, just as an introduction to metaphysics, a brief definition of metaphysics, just the term, the textbook definition. But then I would like for you just to open up our conversation by sharing why metaphysics as like an introduction to philosophy for your students and why metaphysics for someone past the age of a toddler? <laughs> it's a good move, Lewis. Good questions and a good way to begin. Quick textbook definition of metaphysics. It is a sub-branch of philosophy proper, considered sometimes as first philosophy, that is concerned with questions regarding the nature of being, reality, existence, and so on. Metaphysics is an attempt to discern and decipher the structure of being and existence, of reality as such. It is one of the things that I seek to lay out for my students at the beginning because it establishes, as it were, some of the rules of engagement. There's a reason why metaphysics is considered first philosophy. The term itself is coined by Aristotle, so that's going back 2,400 and some odd years ago. And etymologically, metaphysics can be simply translated as beyond or after thesis in Greek, which means nature. So that is to say an overarching perspective concerning the nature of reality or being as such. So it's very abstract. Let me give a quick example of how metaphysical thinking operates, just a very small and quick example. I have here, let's say this particular bottle that I'm holding up. We can begin to describe and predicate certain things concerning this bottle based on empirical observation, right? We can hear it, we can taste it, what's inside, we can see it, and so on. And we recognize it as a bottle based on what we are able to observe. But 
if I remove it from our field of vision, let's say it's beyond what we can immediately sense, and I say the word bottle, for instance, or container, your mind is able to conceive of, your mind is able to conjure up containerness. <laughs> or bottleness. Sometimes philosophers would like to throw that ness at the end to speak of the mind's ability to conceive of the essence of something, which fascinatingly enough is distinct from a particular instantiation. Okay, so let me bring that down again. Using a bottle, let's use an elephant. If I say elephant, your mind conjures up an elephant. And interestingly enough, your mind is not necessarily thinking about a particular elephant. And that's important because if your mind can only conceive of a particular elephant, you would be utterly confused and lost every time you saw an elephant that did not match your <laughs> preconceived notion of what an elephant is. It's because your mind is somehow able to grasp the essential nature of an elephant, as it were, that you're able to see all kinds of differing elephants and never be confused. You're like, oh, that's an elephant, that's an elephant, that's an elephant. In other words, you don't confuse the attributes right, or the qualities with the essential nature of that. That's just very, very sort of basic, seminal example to help us distinguish, ah, well, we can now begin to think about, well, what are the relationships between attributes, qualities, and the essence of something? This is a, a sort of a way into metaphysical thinking. There are many other ways. First follow-up question, thank you for that summary. If you could speak into, like, for the average adult today, why is metaphysics important? Just in the sense that like the pushback that I have is metaphysics seems to be concerned with something that it does not seem useful <laughs> to like my daily life. It seems like it's useful in the cases of discovery, new experiences, but I feel like it would either get in the way or just kind of complicate things. Why would that be important past like an age of exploration or, or an age of discovery? For the average person. Your instinct is pretty correct, Lewis, in as far as metaphysics is quite abstract and is dealing with a particular mode of inquiry that in a certain sense is outside of the purview of everyday life, right? That is because metaphysics is concerned with what is beneath the surface. So if we can sort of characterize everyday life as simply that which is on the surface, but metaphysics will seek to go deeper and say, well, what's galvanizing and what's substantiating the undercurrents that seek to situate the surface as such, right? So yeah, there is that happening. But how can we indeed bridge what appears to be this great chasm between the sort of deep abstraction and everyday life? Let me give an example. It's an example I give for many of my students, as I am introducing them to metaphysics, we can think about this with regards to the category of freedom. Now, two things. Number one, metaphysics shapes and informs our paradigm, our mental model of the world. The way we see the world is decisively shaped by certain metaphysical presuppositions, certain assumptions that are metaphysically given. Many of the times where it's unbeknownst to us, right? It's just something that we possess. We rarely question it. But number two, and this is where I want to get to a specific example. If I ask you, what is freedom? Most likely you would say, well, you know, freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do, right? 
many of us in the sort of postmodern world, we tend to define freedom in this sort of arbitrary flexing of the will, right? The more the options, the freer I am, or we define freedom over and against any particular constraints. The classical philosophers like Aristotle and Plato in Far East Asia, Lao Tzu, Confucius, they will push back on that notion of freedom because they're working with a different paradigm and a different metaphysics at the core. And they will say, look, if you think freedom is just simply the ability to choose among infinite options, you're going to have some trouble. In fact, that notion of freedom will lead to a kind of enslavement. That's very interesting, right? We may think about that as we go to the diner and we're hit with this crazy menu and it's like an infinite amount of options. Like, I don't know how to choose, right? Yeah, right. Paralysis by means of too much analysis. They will say, some of the classical philosophers, that freedom, if you think about this metaphysically, is far more nuanced than the ability to choose randomly, right? That that's an aspect of freedom. But freedom, if you think about it, is the ability to achieve the good, right? That freedom has a telos, has an orientation. So a nice way to think about this is the following. If I invited the both of you to go play ball with me, if we go to the basketball court and I say, let's play ball. Well, we can do that only to the degree in which you know the discipline of the sport. You know the rules, you have a certain physiological capacity, right? An anatomical structure to do so and so on, right? That's the only way you're able to be free to play ball. And we can actually go and compound one example after another. Like if you want to write, you need to know the rules of writing. If you want to dance, you need to know something about rhythm and so on and so on and so on. And this is why the classical philosophers thinking metaphysically concerning freedom will say, ah, there is a higher notion of freedom. That is to say a freedom for a particular good, a particular higher goal versus a freedom from, that is to say, I want to be free from any disciplines or rules, which is a kind of freedom that many of us tend to think about, but that mode of thinking will only allow us to arrive at a certain aptitude. So it's really interesting to see how, and I know this is perhaps still abstract for us, but it's interesting to see how, how metaphysics is quite useful as we're thinking about the categories of being in existence, and we think, for example, about freedom, right? That, wow, there are two notions of freedom. And if we think about that, that's pretty powerful because the difference between, let's say, a successful person and somebody who is not, is someone who already recognizes that, hey, if I want to get from point A to point B, there are certain things that I must do, certain disciplines, certain rules, certain ways in which I must govern myself in order to achieve that end. And if I said to that person, hey, let's be free, let's go chill, they may say, I can't do that right now in this season of my life because I want to be free to obtain that higher good. So in order for me to obtain that higher good, I need to say no to the lesser goods for this season. That's discipline. Discipline then helps us to arrive at a higher notion of freedom. How do we arrive at that? By thinking metaphysically about the very nature of freedom as such. So another way to look at it, would you say that metaphysics is kind of the space in which you work out your understanding of, of certain abstract concepts like freedom? Would you say that a fundamental concept such as like justice, for example, would be another space that metaphysics can also kind of work out that understanding? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there are other subdisciplines in philosophy that will weigh in on depending on the particular questions that we're asking. But what's undergirding all of those 
questions is something metaphysical. So quick example, if I ask the question as you're bringing up, well, what is justice? Is a question that Plato himself will ask seriously in his work, The Republic. That question in and of itself belongs to a field called moral philosophy or ethics. But within that presupposes certain metaphysical claims, right? Because if I ask, well, what is justice? The metaphysician will say, hmm, first of all, before we even define what justice is, or perhaps we may want to do that as a first move, we want to ask ourselves, does it even exist? Is this just a, some, somehow a semantic game? Is justice just a cultural construct? Or is there something ontologically, as a word that comes out of metaphysics, is there something ontologically grounding concerning justice? Is justice somehow real? <laughs> That's an example of how you're doing ethics, mm -hmm. but underneath that is metaphysics. You're doing aesthetics, right? Notions of beauty, but underneath that is metaphysics. And we, we can kind of go that, right? This is why it's sort of considered first philosophy. Metaphysics says first philosophy because you're getting to the core. You're getting to the very bedrock of being and existence as such. You talk about ontology a lot. I've heard both of you guys use that term. I'll be honest, I feel like I don't fully understand that term. So what's the difference between ontology and then also, we talked about studies of being like cosmology and those, uh, what's the difference between those two things? I'll just give a quick, again, etymological textbook definition of ontology. Sometimes it's used synonymously with the word metaphysics. Ontology itself is the exclusive study of being, right? Ontic in Greek, right? Ontologos. So a word about or the meaning of being, being, to be or not to be. That is the quintessential question. And so if we ask then, well, what is being? <laughs> okay, we're asking an ontological question. We're asking then a metaphysical question. And we can arrive at varying perspectives, right? If we say, no, ontology fundamentally is cosmology, we're essentially espousing a position called philosophical materialism, right? All there is, is that which is empirically verifiable. And if it's not currently empirically verifiable, one day it will be, right? We don't know what now, one day we will get to it as technology increases, right? And so the crowning achievement is cosmology or physics or whatever, you know, what have you. But philosophical ontology will say, hmm, there may be certain things that are impoverished there. So the way it's used, we can explore it in different ways. Now, cosmology is the systematic investigation of the large scale structure of the universe, <laughs> right? Like big picture? Uh, yeah, big picture, like the age of the universe, how much matter, mass, right? You're, you're thinking about galaxies, right? The structure of the space time, all of those things are, are so, they fall under cosmology. This is what I find fascinating, and I'll give it over to Edwin in just a moment. We are children of the Enlightenment. Part of what that means is that we tend to think solely by means of empirical reality. What that looks like on the surface, on the street, is when we hear the following, I ain't going to believe it until I see it. Right. I got to see it before <laughs> I believe it, right? right? As if rational belief somehow is predicated on visual confirmation. The problem with that, of course, is that there are many times when our senses have deceived us. We thought we saw something and it wasn't there. So that's already somewhat problematic. Ontology would say, yeah, it, it's going to be deeper. It's going to be deeper. And there's more to say about that, but I've already been speaking way too much. Edwin, please chime in, man. Jump on in if you want to share anything. 
I would love to jump on some of the question around some of what you're saying here. I wanted to add that this concept of usefulness, at least for me personally, is deeply tied into the concept of moksha in Buddhism and Hinduism, which is, you spoke about in terms of freedom or liberation. Knowledge is that form of liberation. And it's a very, very important concept in understanding your place in the universe, right? There's just deep, deep existential truths that are associated with understanding things like metaphysics and some of those deeper concepts. As you were talking, Joe, I know that this is actually like a no-no in metaphysics, but I can't help but to think that physics has a lot to say about what metaphysics is doing, which is that we know that at the most fundamental levels of reality, there is no reality in the way that we actually understand it, right? Which is that we speak a lot about the collapse of the wave function, which is that the universe does not exist until it's observed. What is the consequence of that in terms of metaphysics? And I guess more precisely, Joe, like how does consciousness play a role in metaphysics? Because I feel like you can't separate the two. Reality is almost possible because I think, therefore, I am, right? Reality can't exist without consciousness. These are, no pun intended, cosmic questions. And when we even think, as you know, Edwin, about something concerning quantum physics, like the collapse of the wave function, much of what this essentially means is going to be predicated on an interpretation of the given datum, right? So do we go with the Copenhagen interpretation or this interpretation? And so these varying interpretive grids by which we seek to ascertain a proper awareness of what the data is giving us tells us that there's already in a certain sense a potential schism, a separation between what we can conceive of and what the data is showing us. Now that goes into a bit of the philosophy of science, as you know, Edwin, and the functionality of a scientific theory, which is essentially attempting to offer the best description for the given data. What makes quantum physics so notoriously difficult is that it seems to be so counterintuitive, right? That's because our intuitions, for the most part, are rooted in a classical domain, right? Newtonian world of momentum and inertia and all of these things. And so when we encounter this phenomenon in the microscopic universe, particles somehow magically communicate with each other with infinite distance between them, seemingly passing the law of, of the speed of light, let's say, exceeding the speed of light. They're in, communicating instantaneously or they jump from one state to another. All of this is like, what the hell is going on? Now, does this scientific information help to shape and inform our metaphysical perspective? Yes. So Edwin, I would be definitely in agreement with you that metaphysics cannot eschew and, and ignore what, let's say, science is giving us. However, metaphysics will seek to categorize what is being given to us from science. And it will say, look, what this data is telling us, it's telling us ever only through the domain of empirical observation. There seems to be a whole slew of realities that exceed or that just are not even within empirical 
observation, right? Very quick example. It's fascinating that I can do pure mathematics, but the more sophisticated my science becomes, the more I am in need of mathematics. What that tells me, right, and Edwin knows this, is that the universe itself is somehow profoundly intelligible and has this kind of orderliness that somehow we, as a bipedal species, stumbled upon the very language of the universe. Now, this raises questions as to, well, is math really describing the very fabric of the cosmos, or is it just mere approximation? Is mathematics itself a, a tool of invention, or is it somehow a mode of discovery? These are very big questions we're not going <laughs> to answer here. But what, right. what all this shows us is, again, the metaphysical and philosophical richness already. Just today, I was just saying, like, look, I was teaching one of my courses, uh, Philosophy of Religion, and, and we're currently going through just basic metaphysics. And I began to scribble on the board for them, it was through Zoom, on the screen, Isaac Newton's equation for gravity, right? Universal gravity in the classical sense, right? Fg equals g m1 m2 over r squared, right? <laughs> right? And if you break that down as the force of gravity equals the universal constant of gravity, which is 6.17 times 10 to the negative 11 times the two masses and the square of the distance between those two masses, right? And all of that, right? It's okay. It's like really complicated stuff. But I said to my students, I said, well, look at how fascinating this is, that this little scribble here is an important scribble that we need if we want to do like Jeff Bezos, right, or right. Elon Musk, and send a freaking rocket into space <laughs> and keep it there in orbit, not overshooting, right, the orbit and not allowing it to collapse, right, crash back in. Like, what the hell is that? That through our little scribble, we can predict and do things. And what's crazy is, is that like within theoretical physics, the scribble gets so sophisticated that we can actually begin to make predictions. And we say to the observationalists, oh shit, listen, according to my numbers, you should probably find something like this, go and observe it. And voila, something like that occurs. Like, this is like magic. If we think it's like Harry Potter stuff, like what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> it's like, what's going on? Okay, so I already lost. <laughs> <laughs> you brought no, you brought it all back with Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, what is this, right? So right. again, there's a lot there. So a quick answer. Yes, metaphysics cannot ignore or deny what science is telling us, but it would also recognize what science is telling us within a substrate of other realities. The reason why I was bringing up the whole math point is, is that mathematical objects, they are not something that fall within the empirical domain. We can do math without ever having recourse to the scientific method. And so that means that ontologically, it is prior to the empirical world. This is like some weird stuff. In terms of consciousness, I'm going to table that. We'll come back. <laughs> well, no, no, let's, 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 let's keep going on consciousness here. Because I think Go ahead. you're making a salient point in that, what is reality, right? Which is the question that metaphysics attempts, right, to answer. And if we go to sort of the neuroscience, right, of our minds, one of the most fascinating phenomenon, if anyone takes the time to try to understand it, is schizophrenia. And the reason schizophrenia is so interesting is because if you become empathic enough or if you do struggle with schizophrenia, reality as it is interpreted is reality. So you really have to understand this concept, which means that if right next to me an alien just appeared, 
my brain is showing it. This is not like a concept. Like there's an alien right in front of me. And I'm telling you guys, there's an alien right here, right? Again, there's the biology of that, which is that, you know, your brain is firing and it's causing you your visual perception to see things. And you compare that with the fact that the way we see the world is actually an abstraction of our mind. The way we observe the world is our brain plugging in little holes on the visual, right? And there's only a small spectrum of the spectrum that we could actually see. And the rest of the brain is making up. Just by some magic, we all seem to be doing it almost in the same way, except when something like schizophrenia occurs. So then if that's the case, what is reality, right? Except for the fact that you and I could agree that this thing is here. If I'm dead set on this is the thing I see, but the two of you disagree, is it this the democratization of what reality mm-hmm. is? It's like, mm-hmm. as long as more human beings believe it, then it's real, right? Yeah. Right. No, that's a great question. Yeah. And classical metaphysics would push back against this idea of the democratization of reality as such, or in other words, that somehow reality is determined by the number of persons who are in agreement of said phenomena. Metaphysics, because it seeks to go beneath the surface and beyond the superficial in a certain sense, it seeks to really anchor it in something far more. So the question that you raise, Edwin, is one in which philosophers have puzzled over in a certain sense, right? Where you'll look at those who will push forth the idea of a kind of radical subjectivism. There are forms of idealism, right, that will have some resonance with this. These terms are to say that there are differing ways in which one can conceive of reality. One could say, well, reality is just a matter of really essentially a construct of the mind and nothing more. Classical metaphysics will push against that, push back on that. So it raises the question of subjectivity versus objectivity. Within it is also the question of the relationship between mind and body the brain and consciousness. Now, many of us tend to fall into a kind of metaphysical reductionism, and we'll just simply say the mind is whatever the brain is, right? It's maybe some sort of epiphenomenological reality, but really it's fundamentally the brain. Consciousness is not this ethereal thing. There are a lot of problems with that position. There are some, also some pretty good arguments for that position, right? That being said, It is interesting that we can conceive of a whole slew of things without, let me change it up a bit, by simply saying that the question of consciousness of the mind and its relationship to the brain is also a metaphysical question, right? Philosophy of mind, in a certain sense, could be seen as a categorization of metaphysics. Again, depending on which perspective, which theory you want to invoke and and all of that there, we may arrive at differing conclusions and see whether or not it's rational to hold that position. How can an individual practice metaphysics or engage in the kind of questions or working through these fundamental questions of ontology, epistemology? Do we study what has been done like other people who have studied metaphysics? Or like, is there something that I can do on my own without any additional study, just like how I view the world to kind of engage in thinking about the ultimate question of reality? It's always good to read and to see what others have done before us. One of the benefits of that is that we can see how the questions themselves are formulated. That's pretty good. But that's not necessary. We could also simply ask 
certain questions that I think naturally arise when we watch a good movie like Inception or like Matrix, right? Like, man, what is real? What is, right? Metaphysics is, is already occurring there, if at least we're paying attention. So let's say I don't even have recourse to the movies. I can simply sit back and ask myself, what constitutes reality? What makes something real? I just simply stay with that, right? What makes something real? Is it what is tangible? Something that I can affirm by an empirical observation? If that's the case, what about those things that I cannot directly observe? Or those things that exceed mere observation? Mathematical concepts, for example, albeit we scribble and we have a symbolic representation of what those math, you know, of, of mathematical concepts, the concepts themselves are not grounded in those symbols. So whether we use linguistic appendages like one, two, three, that's going to be different than, let's say, the ancient Akkadians that would signify one as a dot, two as two dots, and so on. Many infinite variety of linguistic usages. The concept transcends any visual, right? The concept is somehow other. Plato got this 2,500 years ago. So we could say, well, what, what is that? Like, wait a minute. So, hmm, perhaps there are things that exist that I don't visually see, but somehow my mind has access to. When we ask questions like, what is love? What is justice? Right? What is life? What is a circle? <laughs> Again, Plato, to use Plato as just an example, will say, well, those are great questions that you cannot answer by means of a clear example in nature. Like you will never find perfect justice or perfect love or so on because the essence of those things transcend any particular instantiation. Like you will never find a perfect circle, but if you study geometry, by means of that, you will be able to judge all other circles and recognize that never a circle can ever be fully instantiated because there are always some perturbations or some imperfections. Okay, so this is like interesting. It's like, wait a minute, wow, so then there's some other world. Or is there just this? So in the example of the circle, are you saying that like the knowledge of what makes a circle a circle, that is the means in which I can measure the imperfect circles. Correct. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying a la Plato. Got it. Right? And Plato will say true knowledge, authentic knowledge, I love that you brought that word up, is rooted in that sort of metaphysical awareness of the form, the eternal world of the forms, the intelligible world. So this goes back to his allegory of the cave and all of that there. And if we think about this, there is some element to, we may want to challenge the metaphysics there, but it is interesting, right, to say that, what does it mean to know something, right? Or to say we possess the truth of some said reality. It gives us, even as Edwin was, I think, evoking earlier, a deeper insight existentially into whatever we're engaging in with. So if I was raised in a family that was really traumatic and was tough, and it's like, oh my God, I had to deal with a lot of shit in my family. Yeah, okay. But then let's say I started to study human psychology and human development. Whoa, wow, my mind is now gaining access to truths that undergird some of the really messed up dynamics in my family. And what that does is that frees me. It's like, oh, now I can see why my mom acted the way she did and in relation to my dad and my brother and right. And what that does is it 
kind of lifts us up above the clouds and says, oh, okay. Now I'm able to see with, with greater clarity here. There's a connection there with metaphysics and epistemology. It feels like metaphysics kind of like is Sober's experience. Certain concepts or things in my life, if I'm not practicing those engaging questions that you're referring to, that I'm just shaped by my experiences. Is that the point of metaphysics in that sense of just like metaphysics is challenging my experiences by asking these sobering questions? Is that a fair way to look at it? Lewis, I love the way you just described it. I think that was it. So it is just like sobering the, yes. <laughs> the intoxication of experience. Yes, it detoxes <laughs> our experiences the same way a filter purifies the air or the water we drink. Yep, that's what it does. Now that could sound like it takes away the zest or the wonder of life, but if done right, it in fact not only is galvanized by wonder and curiosity, but will allow us to contemplate the deeper mystery. The same way we can somehow examine with greater clarity the purified water, distilled as it were, mm -hmm. as compared mm -hmm. to a water that's filled with sediments and many other, let's say, whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, I love that. I would use that in my class. Because <laughs> Edwin, you talked about schizophrenia and our conversations made me think about the movie A Beautiful Mind starring Russell Crowe. Have you guys both seen that? Okay. Love what? Um, we have mad questions, mad conversations about that back in college. <laughs> this is perfect because it really made me think about metaphysics because John Nash in the film at a certain point, that's his name, right? John Nash? John Nash. Okay. At a certain point, right, he's hallucinating figures that aren't there. And he has to basically, in the film, it's, it's like he arrives at his own conclusion that they're not there. He goes through ECT therapy, right? Like all these things, but... There's a certain point in the movie where he's like, the girl never ages. And that's how he logically comes to the conclusion that this is a hallucination. Between our conversations and thinking about that movie, I guess I'm asking a question of like where to begin of like, how do we know what we don't know in that sense of like, for however long, however many years, this poor guy was like dealing with the reality that was false in the sense of it, it did not exist outside of his mind, but he wasn't aware of that until a certain point in the film as far as his life and stuff. And it seems like metaphysics is a space to challenge aspects of life like that, right? Like of this person dealing with a hallucination that they didn't know was there until it was a problem. Can you guys kind of speak into that of like, in this age of, we have a lot of challenges, mainly from technology, which we've <laughs> talked about, but we have these things that kind of like challenge or can produce a reality that is not necessarily real in the sense of like an existing thing. And it's like, how can I know that if I don't know that? That's what's on my mind right now. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts or, or anything to kind of help probe that to get us going on that. Leave it to the artist to ask such an amazing <laughs> question. <laughs> Thanks, but it's a tough one. So I'm speaking as Joe's student right now, as you know, going through a lot of this mm. and listening to your conversation. And what you just brought up is probably the most pertinent example of that, which is that this point of freeing his mind, his hallucination did not go away, right? Right. It's not That's like true. he stopped seeing That's it. That's true. Yeah. It's there. Mm -hmm. It's an understanding why the hallucination is happening that he is finally freed. Mm. So then this is what the understanding, this is the power of the understanding of a phenomenon that is occurring, right? 
It's like, I see aliens, but I know that this is because my brain is doing X, right? And it's a, such a powerful concept. But as you were saying that, maybe I'm going to get a little bit meta on metaphysics here. <laughs> Using that question to bring up my own question, which is a lot of what we're seeing indirectly to the point you're making, Joe, if you look at the patterns, you start to see things like beauty. And as I was attaching consciousness to metaphysics, I started thinking about beauty as being another aspect of that, because everything that we experience is symmetrical. As we talk about love and other sort of phenomenons outside of our direct experience is symmetrical almost, right? It's beautiful. Every human being can understand this concept of beauty. Unless you want to push back on me, Lewis, and say that there's things that uh, artistically are just beautiful subjectively, which I know is true. But for the most part, we can all agree on, on what's beautiful. And every time we interrogate that, it is because of the symmetry. Maybe throwing it back to you, Joe, this idea of symmetry that exists in almost all of these phenomenons, yeah. is there mm -hmm. something deeply rooted in, in our metaphysical world from that perspective? Yeah. Beautiful question. Beautiful question. For the medieval thinkers, philosophers, and theologians like Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, and others will say, yeah, because you are hitting upon what are called the transcendentals. Beauty is convertible with being, and being is convertible with truth, right? Truth, goodness, beauty, they're all convertible with each other because they are emanations of the essentially the same concordant reality. And the profound medieval thinkers saw this and they had a theological vision to make sense of it in as far as all that is true and good and beautiful right beauty having that quality of symmetry and, and gloria and all of these things in it are part of the very grammar of being itself precisely because being is a participation in the being capital B or good, capital G, that is God. Again, there's a lot to be said about that, but without a doubt, that convertibility, which is what you're stumbling upon, is something that the great minds have recognized and have puzzled about and have written, spilled much ink over, exploring the transcendentals. This is metaphysics. And we can then say, wow, well, if it is the case that beauty has this profound ingredient of symmetry and proportionality, right? Symmetry and proportion. My goodness. And if that is somehow convertible with truth, that truth, right, is convertible with that. As you know, Edwin, in the field of physics and mathematics, right? They'll say, wow, that theory, right? It's, it's fascinating that the theories of mathematical constructs that tend to be correct are also quite beautiful, right? And their proportionality and whatnot. And many have discern, wait a minute, we can use beauty or proportionality and symmetry as a mode to test the veracity of whether or not this theory is correct. That's really interesting, by the way, Lewis. Uh, you know, he's like, wow, you could use sort of this artistic reference to see whether or not a mathematical truth is, it is what it is. So this tells us something very, very interesting. And of course, we can push back and play the devil's advocate and say, well, is that just because our minds our minds are sort of pattern-searching machines, and we just read patterns out of things that are really, in and of themselves, are not, in fact, at all that. 
And we can play around with that idea. I mean, if if that is the case, there will be no way in which we can verify that because all we are all we have is recourse to our mind. We can't get outside of that and say, "Oh, wait a minute," you know what I mean? It's like, no, this is it. I mean, that's actually a shot in a certain sense to Immanuel Kant. And anyway, so yeah, it's a very sexy thing. It really is. It really is. I don't mean to say that as provocative, to be provocative, but. There's something profoundly attractive about this idea. Specifically, the idea of metaphysics' ability to kind of connect abstract concepts, like the connection point. Yeah, the connecting point among those transcendentals, mm. recognizing the transcendentals as such. To your point, Edwin, this is one of the problems I have with so-called modern art. So if I go to the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, Lewis, don't shoot me. If I go, <laughs> I go to the MoMA, right? This is the, in my mind, the vomit. That's messed up. I know. I'll, I'll try to. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try. I'll try to qualify what I'm saying. Forgive me. Okay. I'm some hate letters. <laughs> some emails. Like, bro, whose man's is this? <laughs> but but some of these exhibits, so-called exhibits, like the vomit of postmodern nihilism. It's like, what right. the hell is this, bro? A golden toilet? Right. This but this is I, go ahead, bro. Let me let me push back that <laughs> please go. The postmodern art movement was was a response to the modern art movement. I think it was like with punk music of like, you know what? I'm tired of these rules. I'm tired of these certain things that we keep putting on a pedestal. So therefore I'm gonna try to flip it. Like it's in reaction to. It is, it is. And we can't really begin to understand postmodern art without exactly what you're saying, Lewis. And that's absolutely correct. I mean, without a doubt. From what I'm hearing Lewis say, it's a reaction, right? But if there's no coherence, what is it beyond just a reaction? Right, I feel like postmodern art wouldn't exist on its own and like it wouldn't be appreciated on its own personally like i don't think that's interesting in some cases that there would be aesthetic value on something by itself personally i don't find aesthetic value in a jackson pollock it gets me upset at how much they sell for like his drip paintings right but when you kind of understand like oh he was attempting a technique there's more to the piece itself that therefore makes me appreciate it but compare that to like a picasso which even though his his forms like i'm gonna take realism and, and stretch it out and stuff they still maintained an aesthetic quality where like i don't know i just felt like there's a beauty that existed in the painting even though it the figures his famous one Ooh. with guernica yeah where like his like all the figures are all kind of crazy there's still something beautiful about it that sounds like an agreement to joe Joe here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> no, I mean, this is beyond my pay grade. I mean, I, I don't have enough awareness to actually even offer, you know, real pronouncements based beside my, my own reaction to what I observe in, let's say, the Museum of Modern Art. But I was hoping it would be possible for the three of us to engage in a practice of metaphysics about something I've encountered quite a lot with the work that I do. Let's do it. All right, so I have seen the sine wave in a lot of the work that I do as like with motion graphics design or with video editing. A specific example is animating a ball dropping. In animation, I'm just on a computer putting two keyframes. I'm telling this object, which is just like a drawn object, I'm telling it to move from its Y position to another Y position. 
Now, I use Adobe After Effects, and it has, in addition to a keyframe editor, right, which is just like math, it also has like a visual editor in which on a graph, you're animating the difference between the two keyframes. So instead of just like it's saying, go from this point to this point, I'm visually seeing that movement through a curve. And I've been taught, and this has really blown my mind, that if I want it to look more natural, for it to feel like either something's falling or even like just to give it more lifelike movement, to just always try to find that sine wave, like to convert it into a sine wave. So like, I'll, I'll see something that's linear. It's just like, I'll just see like a, a direct diagonal line and then I will convert it into more of a sine wave. Like it's got like that curve or if I'm trying to have it go up and down, I convert it into a sine wave. And it blows my mind that every single time the sine wave feels so realistic. Like even like a ball bounce, which is doing that multiple times, I just make little sine waves instead between the keyframes. And ever since I've discovered that or like have seen it in an animation, but also like with, with audio editing and stuff too, which is a little easier. But the beauty of the sine wave to me that I've seen in my work is that like when I create it digitally, it does kind of elevate the work a little bit more. So how can I, <laughs> how can I begin to understand that? Because I, oh I feel like there's gosh. something there. Bro, I really I'm about do. to scream. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, Joe. I know what you're talking about. Edwin's gonna handle this though. Go ahead. I'm sorry, bro. I was, I was literally about to get up and throw the mic. It's <laughs> getting too crazy, bro. Yeah, that, that, that was that was amazing, man. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, Louis. Finish your question, bro. No, so no, just scream. like I'm about to scream. I'm putting myself on mute. I want to unpack that, like for myself, because like I, I see it in the art, but I want to try to understand a little bit more of like why does that presence of the sine wave in the work elevate the work when I do it. Joe, can I give the physics and then you go, you move into the philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. So there's something strange about reality in what you just said. And you just, like this concept of beauty that we were just talking about fits yeah. right into the experience that you're describing. And that is that at every level of reality, there's some periodicity, which means like some frequency that's associated with it. We, and we can't get away from it. Wow. To some degree, it's almost like we're coding in the universe, that everything in order for it to be coherent must have frequency of some type. And one thing that I'm not going to go get into the visual science of it, right? That's the easy answer is the, there is a visual science of the fact that our ability to see things, right? It's just like, you know, like the moving animation, right? When you move the paper and it looks like it's moving, right? Is, has a lot to do with our ability to receive encode visual messages, which is in itself discrete. But in order for it to make sense, it must be in some level, it must some, some frequency. Even, and Joe knows this from the physics, even the light that hits your eyes has a frequency associated with it, right? You can go at any level, you can deconstruct it and you could, there's a frequency associated with it. And what's beautiful about that is the phenomenon that you actually see in, in complexity theory, right? You know, when you see birds swarm together and you're like, what? The bird is not smart enough to be able to swarm in the way that they're swarming, like as individual birds, what's going on? Or when you see the pattern of a leaf and then you go into space and you see the same collection of trees and, oh God, 
Oh God! Oh, you see, there it is. <laughs> the, pattern, the swarm, the swarm, the swarm is coming. <laughs> so when you go to the tree level, yeah, uh-huh. you actually see the same patterns. Interesting. These are emergence that's occurring at every level. That for some reason at a macro level. So this is what we're seeing in complexity, and you're kind of describing that. Like the phenomenon you're seeing can actually be linked to the very frequency of the light. Wow. And that's why I was like, Joe's got to, you know, but Joe, <laughs> like, take it away, bro. Again, it goes back to the transcendentals and the convertibility. And you're experiencing that within a specific sort of shift of phenomenon between the visual and the mathematical and, right, and, and discerning that pattern that carries through. As Edwin said, these patterns are shot through the universe. You look at a seashell and the Fibonacci sequence that orders the seashell is the same mathematical sequence that orders a galactic structure, right? The spiral arms of a galaxy that contains over a hundred billion stars. Like, what is this? <laughs> we can find here in the microscopic, right, on planet Earth and see that in a macroscopic, right? These patterns are shot through. You look at the nervous system of the human being. You open up a basic biology book, you open up, look at the nervous system, and then you freaking look at a tree during the winter when you see the trunk and the radiating branches, and you know what I mean? It's like, what is this? Or the blood vessels. And again, it's not haphazard. It's because as Edwin was already saying, the very world itself is encoded. Mm. <laughs> it's already encoded, bro. And, and this is quite interesting because the reason why we find a certain beat drop in music aesthetically pleasing or the movement of, a, of an orchestra and the crescendo and how that can bring about a tear, these shifts, these patterns are the same patterns that you're discerning as you're visually bringing about a transition, you know, in, in one frame to another. It's all the same thing. It's all there. It's all there. Now, we can really explore that and go deeper. Our viewers may say, damn, right? We can go deeper than this. This is already so deep. <laughs> but there it is. There it is. Wow. Yeah. We'll have some future episodes, God willing, in metaphysics. And, and you know, this is a broad topic, and we'll be able to zero in on a certain things and, and sort of spend an hour talking about that. Just wrapping up this very brief introduction on metaphysics. This question is for both you, Joe and Edwin. In your studies, as you have pursued knowledge in the different fields of study, has there been any, any works that you could recommend that has challenged your metaphysics or your understanding of reality? Not necessarily like this work converted you to the author's perspective, but just that when you encountered this work at this particular point in your life, that it, it made you question reality in some form. Is there any experience that you guys had like that, that you could either share or just even just the, the work itself in your pursuit of truth? I would need to think about that, Lewis. That's a really good question. I need to think about that. Well, Joe, to help you out, what role did the Bible play <laughs> as far like, did the Bible challenge your metaphysics at all when you encountered it? Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, of course. Yes. Without a doubt. 
at university, I had a, a little spiritual journey. Edwin could attest to this. And I was exploring very many different faith systems, many of them Eastern. Found a lot of truth and beauty and goodness in a lot of the things that I was exploring. I uh, didn't find certain things that I was looking for as well. I returned to the Bible. The reason why I use the term returned is because I always had recourse to the Bible, but never really gave it a real shot. So I opened it up, started reading it, started doing some background work on it as well, trying to consider, well, is this really what is, you know? And it challenged me. It challenged me because it brought to my mind a new way of seeing things. I always had some measure of faith, even though I wavered at certain times in my life, I always had some kind of measure of faith, but to encounter the metaphysical image in the biblical canon was something otherworldly. And when I began to have eyes to see it and ears to hear its message with an authentic sort of gaze, if you will, things opened up. One of the ways in which it did for me is that I began to experience the Bible reading me. I began to experience the Bible reading me. It had this sort of mirroring effect where I'm going through scripture, going through the pages, and it was as if it was undressing me in my vanity and my brokenness and my duplicitousness and my this, that, and the third. And not just morally speaking and existentially. But even began to give me eyes to see the world from a different angle. So those are some of the things that, that I definitely was, you know, challenged by. Edwin, for you, was there any work or any experiences that really challenged your metaphysics? More recently, and my answer will probably show you where I lie in my metaphysics, which is definitely, admittedly, and probably embarrassingly, more materialistic. That said... The work that's happening with assembly theory, this is like Leroy Cronin and some other folks who work on the fact that certain chemical configurations lead to life and causes levels of complexity all on its own, right? What it's showing is something, it's strange. What it's showing is that there's encoded in the fundamental fabrics of our reality, atoms and molecules, is this tendency for complexity. And what they've shown there is that that complexity leads to life. And then life leads to consciousness, you know, and so on and so on. And we didn't create this. So what the science is showing us is something that we probably already know, but I think a lot of us doubt it, which is that life is encoded in our universe. I know it's strange to say that, but like Life occurs by itself in the universe. Like you say that enough time, you think about it. That's what simile theory is showing us. It's like this little molecule wants to start to pull together and it does it by itself against all odds of randomness to create life. So anyone who's either a computer scientist, what the logical next step is who encoded it, right? So then I know Joe automatically points to the philosophy of science here and even his studies. In some ways, I'm actually answering the same question or asking the same question as Joe is, or literally the paradigms are the same, except I'm probably, I'm trailing behind and I'm looking at the material world to understand that. I think any scientist, if they take it seriously, eventually comes to the same conclusion. That's what it's saying today. So that, that's what's blowing my mind right now, is the science is, for a while it's been telling us, but it's really telling us now. 
Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. My brain is fried right now, but there's so much to think about as far as metaphysics and what questions that it really is asking. I don't think I've ever really kind of thought too deeply about it past like it as a field of study, but it really is kind of like a fundamental field of study as far as my understanding of it from this conversation. Thank you both for that. I, I really think that we should definitely spend at least two more episodes <laughs> diving more into metaphysics and looking at it from different perspectives. But, but thank you guys. That was really awesome. You're welcome. Thanks, Louis.